Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm Jonathan Maliberti. Today we have a fascinating episode where we're covering one of the darkest moments in Rolling Stone's history, the Altamont Free Concert and the aftermath of Brian Jones's death, along with the tour in 1969. Before we start, don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Follow us at Rock Band's podcast on Instagram and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, Rolling Stones, part 11. Brian Jones, the founder of the Rolling Stones, was fired by the band just two months before dying in the summer of 1969. It's hard to underestimate how pivotal of a moment this was in Stones' history, the band's founder, the guy who was so influential in their early history and hung on as his creative influence in the band declined, wasn't just out of the band, he was dead, and a whole generation of rock and roll fans were mourning. It also felt like an important event in a greater sequence of events that marked a major turning point in rock and roll history, and for the counterculture and hippie movement more broadly. The Rolling Stones rode the crest of the wave as Western pop culture went from black and white, cute and slightly boring, to technicolor, rebellious, and even devilish. The Stones, who were the bad boy version of the Beatles, went through this transition in front of the world, and Brian Jones was central to that storyline. Brian's death, along with the Beatles' breakup and, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, the disastrous Altamont Free Concert, made clear to the world that the cultural revolution that rock music seemed to have created might have been a fever dream. After all, it really just was music. It probably wasn't going to usher in a new hippie society based on love, peace, understanding, or bring about massive political change. By 1970, the world would finally be able to make sense of rock and roll, and even accept it. And in a lot of ways, this took away much of the power and magic away from rock in the eyes of the general public. More specific to the Stones, Brian's death was an official closing of the chapter of their previous incarnation as the 60s boy band. The 1970s were just around the corner, and just like rock and roll had changed, so had they. They had a new sound, a new look, and even a new lineup to show their fans. The Stones tried to play it off and take Brian's death in stride, and overall they did a good job of not seeming impacted by his death in any way. In fact, after their initial reactions, they went out of their way to pretty much never speak about Brian Jones in public ever again. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards didn't even attend Brian Jones's funeral. In fact, neither did Anita Pallenberg, Marianne Faithful, Ian Stewart, Andrew Lou Goldham, just Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts. Mick was busy filming a movie in Australia, Keith was too rock and roll to go, and the others were just some form of busy. Bill and Charlie were the only ones who made Brian's burial a priority, and it was probably the right thing to do. It's hard to imagine that Mick and Keith in particular didn't feel guilty about what happened to Brian, and being the macho scene that it was back then, they seemed to have doubled down and didn't want to come to grips with these feelings. Not that it was their fault, I mean addiction is obviously a terrible disease and in the 1960s there's no way a couple of kids could have really known how to help Brian. But the band was acting like Brian was a distant memory, even though just a few months before they'd been playing guitars together. Nobody was more frustrated with the Stones' feelings about Brian than Marianne Faithful, Mick Jagger's longtime girlfriend. She was devastated about the loss of Brian and she felt like nobody cared. 
Mick and Marianne spent the rest of the summer of 1969 in Australia, where Mick was starring in the movie Ned Kelly. Rolling Stones historian Rich Cohen explains Jagger's brief film career in the late 1960s by saying, quote, Jagger was attempting the tricky shift from the stage to screen. Fearing rock music would fade, Jagger was on the lookout for a more stable, dignified way to earn a living, unquote. Marianne went along with Mick, but her condition, like Brian's, was deteriorating. Her and Mick's relationship was breaking down, and she was taking medication for anxiety and sleeping while drinking heavily. Faithful was also upset about Brian, and she said, quote, Brian's death unnerved me terribly. I identified with him so strongly. He was the emblematic victim of the 60s, of rock, of drugs, of Mick and Keith. His fate could easily have been mine, unquote. Marianne's mental state was worse than anyone could have imagined at the time, and one night at the hotel, Marianne attempted suicide by overdose and took 50 sleeping pills. A few moments later, Jagger woke up and saw Faithful lying next to him in an empty pillbox and tried to wake her before calling an ambulance. Faithful was then in a coma for six days while Mick waited anxiously by her side. During her coma, Marianne had visions of a young Brian Jones, asking her to follow him to death. Marianne then woke up, and Mick and her mother were by her side at the hospital. She told historian Rich Cohen that her suicide attempt had to do with Brian Jones, drugs, and Mick's unfaithfulness. She said, quote, I thought it was the only way I could hurt Mick, killing myself. I remember thinking, I'll show him. Looking back, it seems also absurd. I don't even want to hurt him, the poor thing. He's been hurt enough, unquote. Mick and Marianne's relationship was definitely in trouble. And soon, Mick would shut Marianne out of his life forever. Autumn of 1969 was spent putting the finishing touches on Let It Bleed, which would be released in November, and preparing for the Rolling Stones' tour of North America. Mick Taylor, the newest member of the Rolling Stones, had got off to somewhat of a rocky start. Honky Tonk Women, Taylor's debut record with the band, was released as a single in July, and it was a massive success, topping the charts in the UK and the US. Uh, it was even one of the biggest songs of 1969, giving the Stones not simply a hit, but a classic. Taylor's first live performance wasn't so hot, however. Hyde Park, his debut in front of hundreds of thousands of fans in London, wasn't exactly the grand opening he was expecting. Giving Brian's death a few days before, the mood was very dark and the Stones were clearly drained and emotional. Bill Wyman said, quote, As people began to arrive to Hyde Park, all the talk was about Brian's death and the coming concert. Mick Jagger, still suffering from laryngitis, was very upset and found it difficult to talk about Brian without showing his emotions, unquote. A crowd full of young British hippies gathered peacefully at Hyde Park, eventually adding up to half a million people. The Stones were really nervous, they hadn't played live in years, and Mick was anxious about performing and fighting summer allergies along with laryngitis. Bill and Charlie were quiet and reserved and in mourning, and Mick Taylor was petrified. When they finally went on that evening, the Stones were clearly rusty. Not used to the new member, figuring out the feel of new live songs like Jumpin' Jack Flash and Sympathy for the Devil, Honky Tonk Women. Bill Wyman remembers, quote, We moved through old hits, old favorites, new songs, but the sound wasn't good. We were dragging. We were off form. Mick winded us, tempo, get the tempo together. We were not at our best, perhaps because the sheer weight of the occasion got to us, unquote. The band also looked different cosmetically than they ever had. 
Keith famously played a Gibson Flying V guitar and wore big reflective circle sunglasses, and Mick was dressed in a long white gown. As a tribute to Brian, Mick read a long poem when dedicating the concert as a celebration of his life and played a song that had become identified with Brian, No Expectations. Hyde Park was a momentous occasion, but the Rolling Stones needed a lot of work before they went on their first serious tour, and they needed to shake off the shadow of Brian Jones's death. In the late fall of 1969, the Rolling Stones finally released one of their masterpieces, Let It Bleed, which they had been working on all year. The album is one of the all-time great rock and roll albums, and it's certainly a contender for Best Stones album. With classics like Gimme Shelter and You Can't Always Get What You Want, the album also featured Keith's first solo vocal, You Got the Silver, which he wrote about Anita Pallenberg. Let It Bleed is also important because it was the last album to feature Brian Jones, who contributed only minimally to the album, and it was the first Stones album to feature Mick Taylor, who played guitar on a couple of tracks. When Let It Bleed was released in November of 69, it became an immediate number one album, signaling that the Rolling Stones were here to stay. Now, the band's competition with the Beatles had changed quite a bit because there was a period in the mid-60s where the Stones simply couldn't compete. They were releasing their Satanic Majesties while the Beatles were in their Sgt. Pepper era, if you remember. But Let It Bleed actually knocked Abbey Road, which had been released in September of that year, out of the top slot in the UK charts. Now, the Beatles vs. Stones rivalry was about to completely change because in the early months of 1970, the Beatles would officially announce to the world their breakup, something that people in the music industry were suspicious of at the time, but there had been no official public announcement. The Rolling Stones were just at the beginning of their golden era, and they were about to become a touring rock and roll band, one of the greatest of all time, and the Beatles were finished. Hard to underestimate just how important that was to the musical landscape of the time. The fall of 69 was also spent preparing for the Rolling Stones' first U.S. tour since 1966. The band decided that they were going to do a full American tour in November and December of that year. This would be a first for the band. The 69 tour would be the first time the Rolling Stones played huge arenas, not just theaters. The format of the show was also going to be different. In the old days, the band would go on and play for a half an hour. These shows were going to be much longer, with better sound equipment, more professional lighting, and overall production that was lacking in the old shows. This was possible because rock and roll had become something of an industry by this point, and the big arena shows that we're used to seeing now really were just beginning in 1968-1969. It was also possible because the fans had changed so much. When the Stones were touring in the 60s, their fans were mostly young teenagers who were there to see Mick, Keith, Brian, Charlie, and Bill. Now fans had grown up. Rock and roll had expanded to a new audience, and the old audience had matured with the music. Rock and roll was the primary form of entertainment behind television for young people in America. Young people had become hooked on new rock and roll bands like Creedence Clearwater Revival, The Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, Buffalo Springfield, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, Janis Joplin. The late 60s ushered in a whole new wave of rock and roll artists, and the Rolling Stones were sort of on unstable footing in that new scene. On the one hand, they were a huge name, up there with the Beatles as far as fame, success, and name recognition. 
They had some recent hits that gave them a genuine popularity and relevance, but on the other hand, there was something sort of stuffy about them. They had been on the scene for a long time. Maybe they weren't as hip or as cool as some of the new bands that were all the rage in America. So the 1969 tour would be a pivotal test. Could the Stones continue to be as big as they were in the 60s? Could they transition into this new wave of music? It was clear both to the audience and the band that things were much different from the last Stones tour in 1966. The Rolling Stones historian Rich Cohen described this transition in his book, The Sun and the Moon and the Rolling Stones, a book I highly recommend. He said, quote, Instead of municipal theaters and fairs, they were playing arenas. Instead of crowds of clean-cut college boys, the seats were filled with hippies. Everything was color, swarm, and scrum. In the past, it did not matter how precisely they played, as the kids screamed over everything. But this new generation was filled with aficionados. Gone was the slapdash of fun of the early years, the intimate encounters on the road. Whereas the musicians had once seemed like part of the audience, me and you raised to a slightly higher power, they'd been amped up into pop stars, supersized and removed, made of different stuff, another species. The rock star was no longer the kid screaming in the basement club. He'd become a deity, unquote. Cohen went on to say that this new level of stardom wasn't necessarily a good thing. He said, quote, It turned them into targets. It's no coincidence that the age of celebrity is the age of assassins. JFK, MLK, RFK, killed because they got too famous. Jagger later admitted to being in fear throughout the 69 tour. Before each show, he'd ask himself, is tonight the night? Unquote. Jagger's sense that something dangerous was possible would become all too real to the band at their Altamont Free concert at the end of the tour, but the tour itself was overall pretty successful. The Rolling Stones North America tour was 24 shows played in four weeks. They hired the firebrand Sam Cutler as their road manager, a real tough British guy who would go on to be the Grateful Dead's road manager from 70 to 74. The idea for that tour was that it should be a huge event, almost like a touring music festival. They really wanted to wow the American audience with a show they would remember. To do this, the Stones decided that they would tour with a pretty long and impressive list of support acts. Every night they had a couple of openers, not just any old musicians though. They brought along big names that were inspirations to them. Uh, acts like B.B. King, Chuck Berry, and Ike and Tina Turner. They even brought along the young and up-and-coming Terry Reid, a British singer that actually turned down Jimmy Page's offer to be the lead singer of a new band he was forming, Led Zeppelin. By the time the Stones got on the stage, the audience had already seen quite the show. But the Rolling Stones just had a new energy to them. Keats' open riffs, coupled with Mick Taylor's guitar virtuosity, completely changed the band's sound from the early years. The setlist pretty much remained the same throughout the tour. They opened with a bang with Jumpin' Jack Flash, one of their big new hits. Jumpin' Jack Flash was definitely a crowd pleaser, but it really took years for the Stones to get the hang of playing this one live. On the 69 tour, it sounded a bit clunky, even awkward. It was hard to capture the feel of the studio version and amplify that to a stage show. Then the Stones moved into Carol, a Chuck Berry cover, followed by a guitar solo heavy version of Sympathy for the Devil, and some of their newer songs like Stray Cat Blues and Live With Me. Towards the middle of the show, the Stones slowed things down with the Robert Johnson slow blues cover, Love in Vain, where Mick Taylor's guitar solo really took the song to the next level. And then they moved into a medley of older hits, Under My Thumb, followed by I'm Free, 
Towards the end of the show, they played an extended and theatrical version of Midnight Rambler, and they usually ended the concert with Satisfaction into Honky Tonk Women and a huge version of Street Fighting Man. The band sounded better as the tour went on, as they got the rust out. By the end of the tour in December, they were red hot and ready to record. They had a few days off between the last show of the tour and the Altamont Free concert they had been planning, so the band decided to take their momentum into the studio and record a couple of songs they'd been developing on the road. After their show at Auburn University, Uh, A journalist who had been traveling with them was told to find a place where they could record anonymously in Memphis. There were a bunch of legal restrictions around recording foreign bands, and they didn't have the time or the interest in doing paperwork and getting the additional work permits just to record a couple of songs. So they got in contact with Jim Dickinson, a well-known studio musician, and he recommended a hole-in-the-wall studio called Muscle Shoals Sound Studio in Sheffield, Alabama. Muscle Shoals was just a little studio run by Roger Hawkins and Jimmy Johnson, who had worked with the greats like Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, and more. And it was a great place where the Stones could record without anyone finding out. The studio itself was sort of a crummy little place. It was a tiny building that used to be a store that made coffins, but it had this real charm and magic to it. Keith said of Muscle Shoals, quote, It was a great room to work, very unpretentious. It was the creme de la creme, except it was just a shack in the middle of nowhere, unquote. Being in Muscle Shoals really let Mick and Keith dig into the image they had of the Deep South. The swampy sound, the whiskey, the cigarettes. In reality, they knew nothing about the American South or the experience of black Americans in the South. They were from working-class London. To them, being in rural Alabama was... Part of their imaginations, it was nostalgic to them, because that's where the music that they love came from. Apparently, this really had an impact on their creativity, though, because in the few days they spent at Muscle Shoals, they recorded some of their best music yet. You Got to Move, Brown Sugar, and Wild Horses. All three songs would be on their next album, Sticky Fingers, uh, which would be released in 71. More on that next episode. The band had a rough version of each of these songs, and the atmosphere of Muscle Shoals, mixed with how well they were playing after a tour, allowed the band to take these songs to the next level. You Got to Move was probably the song that most reflected the band's fascination with their environment at Muscle Shoals. A simple, repetitive, and sloppy-sounding blues cover built around jangly acoustic guitars, with Mick Taylor playing a slide guitar part parallel to Mick Jagger's vocal melody, The Stones had been perfecting the song in live performance on the tour, but the studio recording added an extra push to it. You Got to Move really is, in my mind, the best Stones impersonation of what it was like to be playing in the 1930s, the 1940s, deep south, swampy, delta blues musician sound. I mean, they were definitely doing an act there, and I think it's one of the most convincing they ever did. Next, the Stones recorded one of their greatest works, Wild Horses. This song is so good, and it rivals pretty much anything the Beatles or the Who had done by that point, and it just had enough of an outlaw country vibe that really makes it Stonesy. Keith said, quote, Wild Horses almost wrote itself. It was one of those magical moments when things come together. It's like I can't get no satisfaction. You just dream it, 
and suddenly it's all in your hands. Once you've got this vision in your mind of wild horses, I mean, what's the next phrase you're going to use? It's got to be, couldn't drag me away. That's one of those great things about songwriting. It's not an intellectual experience. One might have to apply the brain here and there, but basically it's capturing moments." Unquote. Many observers claim that the song's title and main line was inspired by Keith's unwillingness to leave his newborn baby, Marlon, and his wife, Anita, to go on tour. He wrote the chords and the melody along with the wild horses image, and then handed it off to Mick, who wrote the rest of the lyrics. Many observers also believe that the lyrics were about Mick's deteriorating relationship with Marianne Faithful. Mick Jagger, who's known to dodge questions about what his songs are about, denies this interpretation. Regardless, the song is a beauty. Charlie's drums brilliantly kick in late in the song, and Keith Richards' lead guitar is twangy and unique. The Stones, who wouldn't release the song for a year, knew that they had something really special in their pocket, and it turned out to be a song that will outlive all of them. The final song that the Stones recorded during their brief stay at Muscle Shoals was Brown Sugar. Brown Sugar was a song written almost entirely by Mick, who had figured it out on the guitar, and he'd been kicking around the idea for some time. Now, Keith wrote the iconic riff, but the lewd and controversial lyrics are really what got people's attention. Biographer Rich Cohen said, quote, Once again, Jagger put himself in the place of the old blue-eyed devil. A scarred old slaver who knows he's doing all right, hear him whip the women just around midnight. Even Mick couldn't get away with that today, unquote. It's true, the lyrics talk about slavery and interracial relationships in the 19th century American South. Jagger later commented on the lyrics saying, quote, That makes it, the whole mess thrown in. God knows what I'm on about on that song. It's just a mishmash. All the nasty subjects in one go. I never would write that song now. I would probably censor myself. I'd think, oh God, I can't. I've got to stop. I can't just write raw like that, unquote. The lyrics flowed remarkably quickly out of Jagger's pen, though. Jim Dickinson, who played piano on the Muscle Shoals sessions, said, quote, I watched Mick write the lyrics. It took him maybe 45 minutes. He wrote it as fast as he could move his hand. I'd never seen anything like it. He had one of those yellow legal pads, and he'd write a verse a page. Just write a verse and then turn the page. And when he had three pages filled, they'd start to cut it. It was amazing, unquote. The few days the Stones spent at Muscle Shoals gave them some of their best material that they had to put in their pocket and hide away until the release of their next album. The Muscle Shoals session really proved that the band was on another level. They were in their prime. They could just read each other's minds on stage and in the studio. The 69 tour of the United States had been a massive success, and the magical recording sessions at Muscle Shoals were the cherry on top. All they had to do now was finish off their 1969 tour with the Altamont Free Concert. What could possibly go wrong? Before we get into the details of the Altamont Free Concert, we have some context. Music festivals were kind of new. Of course, throughout the 60s there had been festivals, but starting in the late 1960s, we started to see these giant mega-festivals, with huge names and hundreds of thousands of attendees. These mega-festivals started with shows like Bob Dylan at Newport in 1965, and then the first big hippie festival was Monterey Pop in 1967, which had breakout performances from people like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and The Who, and like over 50,000 people showed up to that, which was insane. 
1969, music festivals had become somewhat of a mini little hippie industry, partly because there was money to be made, but also because they were fun and they were very much in demand. The hippie movement had bloomed from 66 to 69, and if there's one thing hippies loved was gathering together in big fields surrounded by a bunch of other hippies dancing to rock and roll music. 1969 was the year where these music festivals really were at their peak. There were two huge ones, Woodstock, a New York festival which had an estimated attendance of around 400,000 people, followed by the Isle of Wight in Britain which gathered another 150,000 people together. Nowadays, big festivals like Burning Man, Coachella, Glastonbury, it all seems normal. Expensive tickets, long lines, porta-potties lined up for miles. But back then, there was pretty much no security. Tickets cost a few dollars, if anything. And the entire things were run by hippies who just wanted to throw one big free-loving party. So the details weren't always fleshed out. And as a result, things got pretty messy. Woodstock was so notable because of how close it came to being a disaster. The festival was flooded with so many people, they had to make it free. It poured rain both days, the surrounding towns ran out of food, there were no bathrooms, and everyone walked around in the mud. Despite these less than optimal conditions though, Woodstock is famous for hosting half a million people, having virtually no violence, and it kind of seemed like a perfect end of summer hippie love fest on the hippie movement. The Rolling Stones didn't play at any of these concerts, and they didn't want to miss out on the fun. So during their tour, they were thinking about how they could incorporate this festival, this big Woodstock-like event, into their resume. And after hearing from music papers about how their concerts were overpriced and they were charging too much for tickets, they were charging around $8.50 a ticket, they announced that they would end their tour with a big free festival in California. Just four months after Woodstock, people started to hype this festival up as Woodstock West. The Rolling Stones, led by road manager Sam Cutler, decided to work primarily with the Grateful Dead and other San Francisco-based bands, who at this point were kind of considered pros when it came to events like this. The Dead had all the connections. With the help of the Dead, they got a bunch of musicians to jump on the bill. Carlos Santana... Jefferson Airplane, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young agreed to play before the Grateful Dead and the Rolling Stones. The big challenge now was to find a venue. Initially, they wanted to host the concert at San Jose State University. That fell through because the city didn't want to host any more music festivals. Then the band agreed on Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, a spot the Dead had played at several times. For a while, it appeared that Golden Gate Park would be the venue, but the city of San Francisco was getting tired of the hippies and wasn't tempted to give the bands the necessary permits, especially because there was a 49ers football game that weekend at the stadium located in Golden Gate Park, so that venue eventually fell through. Then the bands agreed on playing at a raceway in Sonoma, but because they couldn't scrounge together a huge $100,000 deposit, that too fell through. Already the planning of this festival was a rushed affair, but after three venues fell through, the bands should have gotten the message that maybe they should wait just a few months before their big festival. After all, the free concert was scheduled for December 6th, and by December 4th, they still didn't have a location. Just in the nick of time though, the band accepted a last minute offer to hold the show at Altamont Speedway in Livermore, California, with barely two days to get the venue ready. 
In addition to how rushed everything was, there was a lot of logistical problems at the Altamont Speedway. First of all, there was really only one long road in and out of the venue. People had to hitchhike or park their cars miles away and walk. The other major problem was the shape of the raceway. The stage was designed for a venue where the band would be playing at the top of a hill, with the audience looking up at them. Because of this, the stage was just a couple feet high, just enough to prop up the band. When they set the stage up at Altamont, it was at the bottom of a hill, so the audience was above the band, looking down at them. This didn't seem like a terrible idea in theory. After all, that's sort of the shape of your basic amphitheater. But in practice, when hundreds of thousands of people gather pretty much on top of a makeshift stage, uh, with no seating, no chairs, and no space between the stage and the crowd, things started to get really claustrophobic really fast for the band. The next problem was security. The common wisdom at the time among the hippies was that police officers had no business at their events. They were peace-loving people who didn't need armed cops making sure they behaved and beating people up. Charlie Watts said, quote, The Chicago riots happened recently. And there had been a lot of images of cops beating people up. So you thought, if you had the cops in charge, it was going to be worse, unquote. Sam Cutler asked the Grateful Dead about how they secured events like this if they didn't use police. And their solution was to use the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels were a motorcycle gang based in California who, for some reason, established themselves as like hippie adjacent during the counterculture movement. The Hells Angels were not the peace and love types, though. They were armed to the teeth with pistols and knives. They were violent. They fought. They drank. They took drugs. They also loved live music and being around the hippie scene. The thinking at the time was, if the Hells Angels are going to be at the shows anyways, why not just ask them to make sure nothing gets too rowdy or out of hand? Grateful Dead drummer Mickey Hart famously told the Stones to just pay the Hells Angels in beer and promise a good time and everything would just be groovy, right? Wrong. Once they had the venue, stage, and security figure out, the band seemed to think everything was going to just be fine and run smoothly. Mick and Keith even went to check out the scene the night before the festivities began. By this time, it was filled with young hippies, Hells Angels, and music fans. The Woodstock vibes were there that night, so much so that Keith even decided to spend the rest of the night partying with acoustic guitars uh, among the festival goers. The day of the concert, it's safe to say those vibes had definitely changed. It was cold and gray out, and the festival had been inundated with drugs. Rumor has it that there was a bad batch of LSD going around and making people go temporarily insane. Regardless, pretty much everyone who was at Altamont felt like something was just weird about that day. Grace Slick, the lead singer of Jefferson Airplane, said, quote, The vibes were bad. Something was very peculiar. Not particularly bad, just real peculiar. It was that kind of hazy, abrasive, and unsure day. I had expected the loving vibes of Woodstock, but that wasn't coming at me. This was a whole different thing, unquote. The Hell's Angels, fueled by LSD and booze, were paranoid and violently breaking up any situation they perceived as undesirable. People dancing where they didn't want them, people crowding in the wrong area, people climbing on things, being too loud. If the angels wanted to throw you to the ground and beat you for misbehaving, they had no problem doing so. The Jefferson Airplane took the stage, and while they were playing their hit, Somebody to Love, they noticed that the angels were beating someone up in front of the stage. Singer Marty Balin jumped into the crowd to break it up, 
and was knocked out cold by a Hell's Angel who didn't like the way he was talking to him. The band had no idea what to do, so they just kept playing while Marty recovered. Marty again got into a physical altercation with a Hell's Angel at the end of the show. The Rolling Stones arrived during the Flying Burrito Brothers set, which was followed by CSNY, but it was too crowded so they couldn't catch a glimpse of either show. The Grateful Dead, after arriving at Altamont, were told of the Hell's Angels' violent mood by Santana drummer Michael Shreve. Grateful Dead guitarist Jerry Garcia responded by saying, quote, Oh, that's what the story is here? Oh, bummer, unquote. Bacious Phil Less then said, quote, Doesn't seem right, man, unquote. Right then and there, the Grateful Dead decided to get back on the helicopter and leave Altamont, not the scene for them. The show would just have to go on without the Grateful Dead. As it got dark, the Stones got ready to take the stage, and things started to feel tense. It wasn't until the band got on stage and started tuning that it hit them. An ocean of nearly half a million people surrounded them. They were a couple feet away from the front row. People squished against the stage. Hell's Angels patrolling around the audience with their motorcycles and hanging out on stage, angry and paranoid like they owned the place. Any moment, the crowd could descend upon them and trample them, and there was nothing stopping them except for a couple of drunk bikers looking for a fight. Suddenly, the Rolling Stones, a couple of skinny British kids in flamboyant clothing, understood that they had gotten themselves into something much, much bigger and more dangerous than they had hoped. They kicked off the show with Jumpin' Jack Flash, and they got through Carol and a couple verses of Sympathy for the Devil when they were interrupted by a huge bang. A Hell's Angels motorcycle blew. From there, the tension and the pushing in the front row had to be addressed. Mick said to the audience, quote, Everybody be cool now. Let's just give ourselves another half a minute before we get our breath back. Everyone just cool down and easy. Is there anyone who's hurt? As they got back into sympathy, the crowd started freaking out as Hell's Angels started beating someone with a pool cue, which caused a huge fight in front of the stage. Mick pleaded with the audience yet again, quote, Who's fighting and what for? Why are we fighting? Unquote. As the fight went on, Keith grabbed the mic and said, quote, Either those cats cool it or we don't play. Unquote. But the band knew if they walked off three songs in, they'd have a full-scale riot on their hands. The band proceeded in fits and starts, having to plead with the angels and the audience between songs to calm down. The tension came to a head during Under My Thumb, when, in front of the stage, a huge brawl broke out. An 18-year-old, Meredith Hunter, repeatedly attempted to get on stage and was ripped away and beaten by Hell's Angels. On his final attempt, Hunter pulled out a gun from his coat pocket, and a group of Hell's Angels grabbed him, beat him, and stabbed him to death as the final notes of Under My Thumb were played. Confused, Keith told the audience that they were going to leave if the Hell's Angels didn't stop beating people up. That's when he was told by an angel that someone had a gun and was trying to shoot at the stage. Sam Cutler said, quote, It was the most terrifying moment of my life. I told Mick there was a guy who'd been stabbed to death and he'd had a gun. Get off the fucking stage now. But Mick was very brave. He said, no, no, no. We can't stop now. We can't. He was convinced that if they stopped and withdrew, there would be a complete riot, unquote. Now, you can see all of this footage on YouTube just to see how precarious the situation was, the fighting, the crowding, um, and the exact moment that I'm talking about. The Stones continued their rocky performance, and they kept having to put out fires between songs. 
When the last notes of Street Fighting Man sounded, they ran off stage and sprinted to the helicopters and flew away from Altamont, feeling like they had escaped death. It wasn't until the next day that they found out that Meredith Hunter was killed at their concert along with three other accidental deaths. The papers were filled with rage over the incident, declaring that the end of the Woodstock dream had finally arrived and blaming the Stones, saying that they were negligent holding this concert. The Stones were furious with the Hells Angels, who felt that they contributed to a violent scene. It was a moment where rock and roll was really put on trial, and the Stones were to blame. Mick was talking about quitting music and retiring. They were denounced by their fans, journalists, even by fellow musicians like David Crosby, who blamed Altamont on the Rolling Stones and their egos. The band's first priority was to get back to England as fast as they could, back to the safety of their homes. They arrived back, having toured America for the first time since 1966, and like when they played there in the mid-60s with Brian Jones and Screaming Girls, they caused an absolute circus. This time, though, rock and roll was much bigger, the crowds were more dangerous, and the Rolling Stones almost paid the ultimate price. The 1969 tour in Altamont was the end of that era, where rock stars were playing shows for free, organized by hippies, where... You could just walk down the street among crowds of people where there was little difference between the crowd and the rock stars. A new era, though, for rock and roll was about to begin. The 1970s. 1970 is where rock and roll really became professionals, where rock stars were transported from gig to gig by private planes. They were insulated from real life and they were kept occupied by money, fame, and drugs. Now, a lot of 60s bands didn't make it to the 70s. Think about the Beatles. Uh, think about Jefferson Airplane, The Doors. Uh, think about The Animals. So many bands just didn't make it to this next era. And with the death of Brian Jones and the Altamont Free Concert, it almost looked like the Rolling Stones weren't going to make it either. But no band would do the 1970s quite like the Rolling Stones. <laughs> 